Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And we're back with episode two of our two-part series on map making and maps in games, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, if you're just joining us and you didn't listen to last week's episode, that probably sounds weird. Last week, uh, Dylan, what is, give us like the, the quick and dirty version of what we talked about last week. Uh, we talked about world maps. Um basically overworld traversal in different video games so um when you're not in a level or a town what does the map look like yeah uh and dylan when he brought it up he's like let's talk about like maps and overworld maps and video games and my my brain did not perceive when he brought up that topic that that was the angle he wanted to talk about and i started thinking about like map making in games and how games with like an exploratory bent handle their maps and so that was where my brain went which was incorrect uh so that's what we're going to talk about this week and i'm i'm very excited because i very much like a lot of games that fall into different categories of of doing this and i think to kick us off i want to talk about kind of the the first game i remember doing something that has kind of become standard practice in exploration based games so at least in like the 3D sphere. So that there, any game where you have to run into the chat, like one of the challenges being exploration and finding your way around, the way that they give you the tools to do that are always really interesting. And I remember, if if you play any 3D game, any 3D open world game nowadays, odds are good, not every game, but odds are good that you are going to run into a situation where it's like, I need to fill out more of my map. Let me climb that tall thing and do something, and that will fill out my map. <laughs> and I, the first game I can remember doing this was the original Assassin's Creed. I okay, I, I yeah. could be wrong. Um, I that sounds about right, honestly. Um, yeah, like I can't I, think of I, anything I, that does like maybe Far Cry Two did it, but maybe but yeah that's the th- i i can't think of any games that did that before the original assassin's creed came out um and in assassin's creed i've talked about assassin's creed before in terms of like how they play with like the diegetic versus non-diegetic elements of their user interface and like the fact that in the fiction of the game you are in a computer simulation so they can play with like UI prompts and the and the map and the the pause menu journal all being things that are actually there for you diegetically in the game world. Um but Assassin's Creed one of the things they did that again I has been taken by not not every 3D open world adventure game but a lot of them is you know you could open up the map and there would be like a little like icon indicating hey there's a viewpoint here or 
if you were just in the world exploring and you looked up, if you saw an eagle circling a tower, that was your indication in the game world that that was a place where you could go to activate a viewpoint and unlock more of the the map to actually see. I never noticed that. It's so good. That's and they, so they, cool. Again, I, I, I know they kept that in Assassin's Creed 1 through like 3. I don't remember if it was much a thing after 3, but that was kind of the last one that I played a substantial amount of. So... But yeah, that was kind of their their take on it. And then that has been taken by a huge number, again, of like your Assassin's Creed and Assassin's Creed Light games, your uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, where you have to climb the satellite dish Brontosauruses, your Breath of the Wild, where you have to climb the Sheikah Towers. Like that has kind of become the standard for 3D adventure games of like, you come to a new region, you climb up to the top, the tallest thing there, and that will open up your your mapping ability so that you can see the game world a little bit more clearly. But even in there, there is nuance. I'm 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 kind of rambling on this one topic because this is like the standard that I kind of want to address, and then there's mm-hmm. other games that I want to that do wildly different things the, that I want to. I want to shout out. Gets a little well. funky, yeah. Yeah, the standard way this works, and the way that it works in like. For example, Assassin's Creed 2, uh, you climb up to this thing, and it not only does it, like, fill in that region of your world map as far as, like, the street layouts and things, it also populates it with all of the little pips that mean, like, this is where a an optional mission starts, this is where the collectibles are, this is where a treasure chest that contains something, some, like, money is, this is where, uh, you know, all of those things get filled in when you open it. And some of them have to be found through exploration. Like some of the some of the harder to find collectibles don't automatically fill in, but for the most part that's kind of becomes the default gameplay loop with every new uh like section of that game cuz like in Assassin's Creed 2 you start out having a small section of one city and then you finish that like sector of the game, that chapter, and then it opens up another section of the city and so then you have to like at least the way that I always played it is I would then like my first priority is I'm going to go to all of the viewpoints so that I have a full map and then I'll start doing the other various things that mm. are available to me. And that's not a bad formula, but it took a game flying in the face of that for me to realize how much I didn't actually like it <laughs> uh, because it it means that like you go and it just becomes kind of like a checklist like it's yeah. like okay i'm going to i'm going to find i'm going to climb all the towers and fill in my map and then it's like oh i can just open my map and pick a thing to go do yeah there's and that's no not a, oh sorry yeah keep going i was just gonna say, like that's not a bad thing what were you going to say i was just going to say that i i feel like um especially like pointing to breath of the wild i feel like there's more creativity and opportunity for discovery and just I don't know. There's something a lot more subjective when you can't see the the markers and you have to put them there yourself. Exa- and that was exactly what I was about to segue into. Breath okay. of the Wild. Yeah. Oh, there we go. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. You're the, you, I'm, I appreciate it because it shows we're on the sh- same wavelength on this. <laughs> Breath of the Wild superficially has the same system. Like you've got the, this huge world map that is broken up into these different like sectors. And in each sector, there's a big tall tower. And when you climb the tower, it fills in the map. But what Breath of the Wild doesn't do 
is then pepper that map with all of those indicators of where stuff is. It fills in the map, it fills in the, top the topography, it'll put names on, like, this is what this river is called, this is what this forest is called, which, as a side note, I love that. Mm. Like, that is one of my favorite little touches in Breath of the Wild, is every area of woods, every hill, every river has a name. And it doesn't fucking matter. Nobody, like, almost nobody ever refers to them by name. Right. But the fact that their name just makes that world feel like a real place in, like, a tiny little way that I'm not used to seeing on in-game maps. It's something that I don't actually think about that much, but now that you've pointed it out, it, it is super charming. Like, they, yeah. every stream has a name. Yeah, and again, it adds nothing mechanically, and I, I can think of, off the top of my head, there is one side quest I remember where someone refers to an area of woods by name. But the fact that they gave them names and the fact that that is what you see when you open up the map just make, like like I said, it makes it feel like you're looking at a map of a place that could be real. Mm -hmm. Like a map that was made by someone to navigate a real place. It's, um, I, I talked about this briefly last week, I think, but um, it it's kind of scratches that same itch that like when you open up a fantasy novel and they have a map of the, yeah, yeah. the fictional world in the first few pages... Yeah, very much the same thing that I that we talked about with the uh, the Octopath Traveler yeah. start screen map last week. Um, but yeah, what Breath of the Wild doesn't do is they don't, you know, in Assassin's Creed you climb the tower and then you see like here's where you know the the half dozen to however many side missions all start in this game in this this sector. Breath of the Wild it just fills in the topography and the names. You still have to go. And find the things to do. And for me, that is a huge component of why I love that game. Mm -hmm. And, like, in particular, why I love the first six hours of that game. Is that sense of, like, exploration. You don't know where anything is. But, like, huh, that's a funny-looking hill. Or, huh, what's that little, like, valley you can see on the map there? And just going, like, placing a pin to keep your bearings and going off to see what's there. Mm -hmm. Like, that is a a level of, for lack of a, a better way of putting it, like, genuine exploration that not very many games have ever offered. And in the same way that, like, the first Legend of Zelda game offers. Right. Like, I was gonna say, it's it's very much a yesteryear kind of... Yeah, and it, that's actually, like, this is... Not something I have a ton to talk about, but I did want to bring up, uh, kind of out of Breath of the Wild, the okay. fact that the very first Legend of Zelda game was designed on, like, post-it notes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, shit, they, I forgot about that. Yeah, the, the first Legend of Zelda game, uh, for anyone who hasn't played it or hasn't played any of, like, the older Zelda games, it's a, like, top-down, essentially, exploration game because it was on the NES and that was what they could do. And so every the world is broken up into these, you know, what, probably 480 by 320 pixel screens. Mm -hmm. and, Something like that. Yeah, and you, you know, you can go, from most of them, you can go up or down or left or right into another one. And so when they were designing this game, they literally, like, drew a rudimentary version of what each of those screens would look like on index cards 
so that they can put them up on a wall and see how it all fit together in, like, you know, our human meat space. <laughs> and then they could, like, you know, take them down and move them around and see how it would change things and, like, make sure... They they used that to make sure that they had a cohesive world that you could navigate in a way that made sense without, like, breaking anything or meaning that, like, they had to build some kind of cheat where, like a space that should connect in some way actually doesn't, or two areas that don't feel like they should be connected have to connect. They, like, they mapped all of that out in a really interesting way using, like, you know, of all things, post-it notes on a cork board, <laughs> which I really, really love. But yeah, that was my my kind of intro and then uh, relishing Breath of the Wild and how they, they explore it. What, what, are, what are some mapping games that you enjoy, Dylan? Okay, so this one isn't quite... A mapping, or like you know, it's not a mechanic that is built around mapping, mm-hmm. but it's more like a. It's it's gonna be hard to explain in, until I just start talking about yeah, it. Yeah. So, um, last week I also talked about the the Fire Emblem games and how, um, in between levels they they pull the camera back to show you the entire continent the game takes place on, and show you kind of the transition from the level you were on to the next level. Yeah. Fire Emblem 4, uh, Genealogy of the Holy War, um, it has a similar type of transition screen. However, um, the the scale of Fire Emblem 4 is much bigger, so when you, when you see the levels, they cover a lot of land. And so, Chris, I'm going to send you a couple images, but what you'll see is that um, when, you, when you take the different maps together, you can actually recognize geographical features on like the the larger world map. Oh yo, that's cool as hell. Yeah, like you can you can like see the border for the ocean and be like, "Oh, so that's that curve on the on the continent or the landmass or whatever you want to call it." Oh yo, that's really cool. Yeah. Like see it, it it's hard for me to describe like in words, but it, when you like if you could upload the image to um to Twitter, thankfully yeah, we have a watermark lot. for the second image. So that has proper credit. That is super cool. Yeah, it it this it gives me the same vibes as something like Dwarf Fortress or Minecraft. Mm-hmm. Neither of which are games I've played a ton of, but both of which, when I've played, the reasons I've liked them has been for the sense of like you open it up, you get this randomly generated world, and you just kind of go like, okay, let's see what's over that mountaintop. And I think that's really cool. And this gives me that same vibe, but in a much more like crafted way. Mm-hmm. Also, God, just like that—the person doing this overlay work, how fucking cool! It's it's really good. I like it's super impressive. Also, I have to look up Dwarf Fortress now because I oh this game. Okay, yeah, yeah, the old uh, uh, Axie graphic nightmare. Yeah, like this is vintage, vintage, vintage. <laughs> it's it is the old magics. <laughs> um. But yeah, so that that's God, that's cool. Uh, sorry, my my brain shut off because I was busy ogling this map. <laughs> no, that's really cool. So yeah, the, the, that, that's the less degree... of. Oh yeah, go ahead. I was just say like the degree to which like I could see this being the kind of thing where like you don't notice until like the fourth or fifth board. I think I noticed around the third. Yeah, like the third yeah. or fourth. Um... And what a cool moment of discovery to just be like, oh. This is familiar, and this is why. (laughs) (laughs) 
Exactly. It's just uh, the the cool thing about this is that it's not a mechanical map making, but it's it's a narrative map making, or it you know it's there if like you have a really vested interest in the yeah in the geography of this world. Yeah, and I think that those kinds of mechanics are always like that falls into the same kind of uh, the same kind of thing I was talking about with the the place names on the map in Breath of the Wild. It doesn't. It's not like it's a huge important thing, and it's not like it's the kind of thing that necessarily everybody who plays is even going to like think to notice. Mm-hmm. But it's there for the people who I don't want to say the people who give a shit, but the people who like are there are people who are going to notice those things, and it's going to be a really cool moment for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that like that's one of my favorite things to see in games are those like totally optional attention to detail. Not- yeah, not even that challenging to add. Like, obviously takes work, takes time, takes effort, as everything that goes into a game does. But, like, they were designing the level maps anyway. Right. It took a little bit more time to make them adhere to the coastlines of the world map. And, again, not everyone's going to notice. But some people are, and if those people are like you and me, they're going to think it's rad as hell. <laughs> God, that's cool. Uh, what do you say we slide on over to the playbill? Yeah, do let's our, do it. Our, our dark business over there, and then we come back and talk a little bit more about this business. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go! Wow. Right, and here we are in the playbill. So this is where we talk about other things that we're working on, other shows we are a part of, other things we think you should know about. Hey, Dylan, tell me about big robots. Uh, big robots are really cool, Chris. I hell yeah, I, they are. I really don't know what else to say. What could be more cool than a robot? Well, let me tell you, uh, <laughs> a giant robot that turns into a fighter jet and fights giant aliens, and that is the premise for. Super Dimension, for, yeah, sorry, the show Super Dimensional Fortress Macross, which is an anime that came out in the 80s. And hey, I have a podcast about that show um, called Dude, You Remember Macross? You might not remember Macross, but we can help you remember Macross <laughs> if you just listen to us at anchor.fm slash dude you remember. We are also on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. You should also go check out The Unexplored Places. It's an actual play podcast about uh, people getting up to no good. Season one was set in a rural Ohio town and dealt with ooky spooky mysteries using the Monster of the Week engine. And now we are playing in season two, a sci-fi crime story swashbuckling adventure type thing using the game system Scum and Villainy. Dylan and I are both players. It's run by our friend Christine, who is incredible. Uh... It's been a great time. It's been a, a, a really fun show to be a part of. We are telling some really interesting and cool stories, and I think you would enjoy it if you listened to it. So go check them out. You can find them on Twitter.com by going to their at UnexploredCast, or you can find them at unexploredcast.libsyn.com. I also want to shout out our uh, our the whole family of podcasts that we're a part of over at the HP Video Game Podcast Network. It's a whole network of podcasts about video games. And if you like our show and the way that we kind of break down games from like a narrative and storytelling perspective, 
You might like some of the other shows where they look at games from a news perspective, from the perspective of people who have worked as developers, from just a fandom perspective. There's a lot of shows all about games, all from different angles. You should go check them out on Twitter, at HPVGPodNetwork. And another big thank you out there to our patrons over at patreon.com slash bsgpod. You are incredible and amazing for the support that you have given us. Uh, it means that we're not losing any money making this show, which is an incredible privilege and we, it means the world to us. So thank you to everyone who is a patron. And if you like our show and you are not yet a patron, consider heading over to patreon.com slash bsgpod and uh, supporting us fungibly if you feel so inclined. We appreciate every single person who does that. Uh, anything else for the good of the listeners, Dylan? Uh, I got nothing. Let's get back into it then. <laughs> I like your Foley work. Thank you. It's I... like I'm on live from here. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about another game that I've been playing a lot of in quarantine uh, because I love it and because it does really cool things with map making. I want to talk about Hollow Knight. Yes. I... Hollow Knight is a game that I, I bring up not infrequently because it's just so smartly designed in so many different ways. But one way that I really one thing about it that I really really love is the way it handles exploration. And this is not terribly unique. Uh Metroidvania's 2D exploration games have always kind of had the idea of like a place you go to get the map. In Super Metroid there are like the the nav stations or map rooms where you go and you, you know, Samus plugs her gun arm into the computer and downloads the station map. Um I'm trying to think if they have anything like that in in the uh, the the Castlevania Metroidvania get uh, titles. I I think you just find maps. Um, you can okay. Find yeah, maps I was trying to remember things. how they how they broke that down. Um, and then you also have the map fill as you explore. <clears throat> yeah, and Hollow Knight does something very similar, but with a little bit of a twist. So in uh, and uh, I'm just thinking about how they do this, and it's so good. Hollow Knight is such a smartly designed game. Uh, so the first time you you find your way down into Hollow Nest. You enter into the first zone of the game, which is called the Forgotten Crossroads. And right away, you can go left or you can go right, because it's a big open-world Metroidvania game, and it, it's all about exploration. If you go right, you can go a decent distance, but eventually you will hit a dead end. That is only accessible by going left and looping all the way around. When you go left, you then have to go down, and again, that... This is one of the things about this game that's very smart, is they kind of funnel you through the first couple hours, and then it it opens up as you get more and more of the tools that let you explore. But in order to just get anywhere in the game, you will pass by the character Cornifer, who is sitting there humming merrily to himself and drawing a map. A map that you can buy if you have enough of the money that you get from killing enemies. And you might think, like, great, now you have the map for that area. Not quite. You have the map that Cornifer has drawn so far, which shows some of the areas, but it does not show the entire like breadth of that zone. It also does not show you where you are, and it does not auto-update. It is just a drawn map that you bought from this bug man. <laughs> Immediately, that's really cool to me, just yeah. because, like... No, I love that system. It, it's a really cool way of, like, giving you some info but not all of it i also think of it like this um in the real world if you, even if you have a map it's not going to tell you exactly where you are or what the landmark that you're you are near exactly yeah, exactly we're gonna get it, there. It, yeah 
Go yeah. ahead, continue. It, it forces you to start to build your own mental map. Or at the very least, to start to like mentally associate like the landmarks, the la landmarks. Wow, the landmarks that you are seeing in the game with like what that is on your map. It forces you to be a little bit more active than your typical game map. It, I honestly kind of think about the uh, maps they give you at amusement parks. Yeah, yeah, it has that same kind of energy. Then, however, if you want to, you can go back up to, like, the main little settlement, which is called uh, Dirtmouth, which is a very good joke. And there is a there you will find Cornifer's wife, Iselda, who has opened a map shop. This serves a couple of purposes. The, the first one is that you can buy a quill, which then, what that does is then anytime you rest at a bench, it will update your map with everywhere you've been since you last rested. So that is how you are then able to fill in those blank areas that Cornifer has left. You can also buy a compass. But the compass is not like in Legend of Zelda where like you find the compass in the dungeon and then it shows you where you are at all times. The compass is a charm, and you have a limited number of slots available to you for charms. So if you want to, you can spend one of those slots and it'll give you a compass. And then that way, when you open the map, it'll show you a little icon of where you are in the world. But... Maybe you want that slot for one of the charms that makes you hit harder, or makes your sword longer, or gives you a magic upgrade, or any of the many, many other things that charms are useful for. And again, I love this. <laughs> I think this is so cool, because it means, if that's important to you, or if you're like, I tend to use it a lot when I'm like later in the game and I'm trying to like do a lot of collecting things, or like trying to keep track of like where I am while I'm on like one of the longer side quests, mm -hmm. I find it very helpful to have that charm equipped so that I can just, like, know at a glance where I am. But maybe you decide it's more important for you to have a slightly longer nail, or maybe you decide it's more important for your spells to deal slightly more damage. Having that be a thing that you kind of have to weigh the benefits versus risks of, I think is really, really clever. And then the other thing about this that I think is so cool is you can also buy pins, because Holland is another game where... They don't really give you any indication of where to go until you're, like, halfway through the game. They give like you an you... indication on where to go? Halfway through the game, they do. <laughs> by which I mean they plop three icons on the map in vast areas of unexplored terrain because you haven't had the things you need to get there and say, go there now. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. it's it's So, for most of the game... And this is kind of the thing about Hollow Knight that turned me off a little bit the first time I played it. Mm -hmm. It's it is a, it is a Metroidvania, but it's a fairly linear one for the first like four to six hours, depending on how quickly you're able to get past some of the bosses and how quickly you're able to traverse some of the areas. Like it is big and sprawling, and you'll have to like find different paths through this world. But it's fairly linear. Like you start in the Forgotten Crossroads, and then you go to the Queen's Garden, and then you go to the Fungal Wastes, and then you go to the City of Tears. And then, at that point, you will have enough of the different tools that it's like, oh, now there's like six or seven different paths that I can follow. Uh, so it takes a little bit of time to get to that open world zone. But then after that point, if you once you have all of those tools, there are a couple of different paths you can follow that will get you to an area called the Resting Grounds, and that is where you get your, like, an objective marker on the map for the first time. Again, usually, the last time I played Hollow Knight, which was a few weeks ago, I think I got there after, like, 
six or seven hours. Uh, and that was a pretty quick run because I, I, I know that game pretty well at this point. Hey, nice. So there, there's a lot of just like needing to kind of fill in the map on your own. And so you can go to that map making shop and you can buy pins. And I tend to use those as like, if I run into an area where it's like, oh, that's a dead end, but obviously eventually I will have a tool to get over there. You can drop a pin there for yourself to remind you. Or if you come to a spot where it's like, oh crap, there's a, you know, there's a split in the road. I don't know which way is going to lead to where I, where I want to go. You can drop a pin there. And as you explore and you enter into a new zone, you need to find Cornifer and you need to get a new map for that zone. And I, it just, the way that they handle map making as a part of the exploration in that game just feels good. Especially because you have to find Cornifer and you can find him because if, when you start getting close to him, you'll start seeing like little leaflets of parchment that he's dropped as he's been exploring <laughs> okay, that that's you can follow charming. to find him. About that. Yeah, it's really cute. You'll find like little leaflets and then as you start to get close, you'll hear him humming. Mm-hmm. It's it's delightful. And the uh, I'm rambling now because there's so much about the way Hollow Knight does this that I love. The other thing that I really love is when you buy his map, it usually will have an indication of something. Like when you buy his first map of the Forgotten Crossroads, you see kind of a general path through it and then on on the map in one of the rooms, there's like a scary face that he's drawn, and that's where the first boss of the game is. Mm. Uh, in in a later map, when you find when you find him in the uh, when you find him in the the not the Queen's Gardens, the uh, Green Path, he is he is drawn on there like one of the benches, which are like the checkpoint areas, and he's drawn a little indicator, which is where you have to end up going. Uh, and so there's little clues on the map that he gives you of, like, where you're going to try to be getting to. But again, it's in that kind of diegetic sense of, like, oh, that's just where he managed to explore before I found him. And I think that's just really charming and mm-hmm. lovely. And it turns into a fun game when you're in a new zone. You have to play the game of, like, okay, Gotta get your I don't have... Again. Yeah, it's like, I have no map at all to keep track of where I am. I really hope I find Cornifer soon. <laughs> And so it adds a little extra layer of, like, do I want to explore this new zone or do I want to go back and get to where I know where I am and do a little bit more scouting around there? Mm -hmm. Or do I want to go try one of these other paths that leads to somewhere because, like, maybe I'll be able to find Cornifer earlier in that zone than I can in this zone. And it just, it adds a layer of kind of decision-making to your exploration process that I really enjoy. Okay. I I might have to revisit, like, I've been meaning to revisit Hollow Knight and... I. I think you should. It again, it took me a while to get into it. Like the first several times I picked it up, I would play it for a couple hours and go like, "Yeah, I get this. I get that this is fun." And then kind of like lose steam on it. Yeah. And then I don't know what changed, but eventually like I picked it up, I think like the third time I start I tried playing it and sat down and something about it just clicked yeah. in a way that it hadn't before and I was like, "Oh, I'm hooked now." <laughs> that in itself is like a really good feeling cuz like at least me personally, I feel like whenever I criticize a game, it's because I want someone to tell me what the appeal is. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that you really just sold me on Hollow Knight, or resold me on Hollow Knight, I guess I should say. Well, I'm glad, because I think it's really, really cool. And it, the other thing about it, and this this is not an episode about Hollow Knight, and yet here we are. <laughs> I just can't get over the fact that it was made by a team of three fucking people. <laughs> I forgot that. They had one artist. For that entire game, I didn't realize they had the team one was that programmer. Small. Holy cow! It was, yeah, 
I think it's gotten bigger now. I think that it's going to be a slightly bigger team for the sequel, which is coming out someday soon, I hope. Yeah. Um, okay. I wasn't sure if there was any updates on that because I, I, I haven't always, seen any recently. Okay, I was always a little bit more interested in Silk Song than the original Hollow Knight. But... Yeah. But it, it was a team of three people plus a composer. Okay. <laughs> and that's wild. <laughs> Jeez, uh, man. But yeah. Yeah. That Hollow Knight was kind of one of the, the big ones I wanted to talk about this week just because I like. I love a lot of things about that game, and the mapping system is is a big one. Mm-hmm. The other nice thing is there are areas where, like, if you if you find yourself in a in a zone for long enough, and you don't find Cornifer, eventually, if you head back up to Dirtmouth, you will just be able to buy that map in the shop. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't penalize you too hard if you just like happen to take a wrong turn and get turned around for a long time and just don't take the path you need to to get to Cornifer. That's really you cool. should you will still be able to buy the map for that zone. That's Which is so just like, cool. Holy it's shit. just a good little quality of life inclusion. Like, they didn't need to do that, but that game is big enough that if they didn't do that, it would be a real pain for some people. Yeah. So I, I just really like that touch as well. And that's what I had to say about Hollow Knight. Every, if you haven't played Hollow Knight, I highly recommend it. It's not expensive, and it is a really... It's, it is a very good take on the things that I like about Metroidvanias and the things that I like about Souls-like games. And they managed to fuse them in a very creative and interesting way mm-hmm. and i like it a lot hey dylan did you have any other uh games with cool map things that you wanted to talk about um other than like the absence of an autofill map because like i when i think of like you know old pen and paper or you know old computer games that made you use pen and paper to explore i also think of like at the etrian odyssey games on the 3ds where they were these dungeon crawlers where uh, the bottom screen you had to draw your own map or you had to like put notations um, I remember those screen. games I never played them but I always thought they looked cool as hell yeah like in retrospect I really regret not picking one up but I'll maybe someday I'll I'll find the time to play it yeah you talking about pen and paper also reminded me of the fact that in fucking Zork a text based adventure game they make you solve a labyrinth oh did we talk about the okay yeah that's that. That's great. Every time you mention I, that, I I'm I know I brought that up on this show that. before. But genuinely, I had to. I when I played Zork when I was fucking eight years old, I had to get out a piece of graph paper to track my way through this fucking labyrinth <laughs> in this text-based adventure game because game designers in the early days of the the medium just didn't give a single shit. It's like, what do you mean you don't have graph like graph paper next to your computer? Like, it's utter bullshit, but it's also one of the coolest things I've ever run into in a game, so I can't really be mad at it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it's, like, I, I love stuff like that. Um, I do, too. I love like, stuff like that with proper warning, but yes. I do love stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I, again, it's one of my fondest memories of, mm-hmm. like, my early days as a young gamer, oh, uh, but, but it is also kind of unthinkable and the kind of thing that nobody would ever put in a game nowadays <laughs> because we know better right gosh uh oh shoot there was i feel like there was one more um game i wanted to cite but i it's, it's fine had something to do with map drawing maps oh oh the zelda games yeah the uh oh, yeah like the the ds zelda games also had that mechanic where you would oh get, yeah you would get the dungeon map but you would have complete freedom to write on your map whatever you wanted or needed yeah and they also had the um there's a similar system in like wind waker where you had 
you had to like track down the fish in each of the uh, the sea quadrants mm. to buy that portion of the sea chart. And when you first get your sea chart, it's just like, I don't know, maybe there's an island there. It's, Figure it's it out. Completely empty. Um, Which also at like is one of my favorite things about Wind Waker because like, and I know that Wind Waker has a mixed people have mixed feelings about the like ocean travel aspect. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I like. I thought that was one of the coolest things about that game. I loved it as a kid. I don't know if I would like it as much now in a post Breath of the Wild world. That's fair. That's fair. I haven't revisited Wind Waker in a great many years, I, I but played I remember a little really bit. enjoying. That. I played a little bit of it. I haven't gotten to the point where the game really opens up. Um. So keep mm-hmm. that in mind. But uh, I was I was kind of like. It's not. It doesn't hit quite the same. Um. That's fair. But that, that's that's fair. also mostly because i think breath of the wild scratches that itch better yeah i think that's a reasonable take i i might have to track it down and see if i can there's not a switch version for that yet is there unfortunately no hey hey nintendo (laughs) (laughs) take a seat let's talk about why the fuck there isn't a reasonable virtual console yet (laughs) i don't get it bad Anyway, that's Guys, neither did, here nor did, there. Did you buy the, the Super Mario 3D All-Stars before it gets locked away in the Nintendo vault? I did not, because fuck that. <laughs> you see, Nintendo and Disney are both corporations that are doing really evil... <laughs> I don't know if I'm <laughs> Plinkett or Strong <laughs> Melting into wax. Um, <laughs> I was going for Plinkett, and it turned into, like, Plinkett fused with Strong Bad, so... It, it turned it, it turned into Plinkett if he was being turned into a wax sculpture by an evil mirror universe, <laughs> Madame Tussaud. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Uh, does that does that more or less do it for us for this week, Dylan? Yeah, let's let's end this episode. All right. I hope you all enjoyed listening to us. Uh, tell us, tell us about your favorite games that deal with this. This was kind of like both on like maps, but also just kind of exploration as a game mechanic. Tell us your favorite games that do interesting things along those lines. I know there are other there have to be other like Metroidvania style games or other games out there that that play with your ability to keep track of where you are in interesting ways. And I would love to know more because it's something that I think is really cool when done well. Uh, so tell us about that. Dylan will tell you how to reach out to us in a moment. But first, let me just say thank you again for listening. If you like our show, which I hope you do if you've listened this far, remember to leave a rating or review on iTunes. You can also find us on Spotify, on the Google Play Store, on Apple Podcasts. That's iTunes. I don't know why I repeated that. On Stitcher, on any of your given podcatchers. Uh, and also just... If you like our show, remember to spread it around. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell anybody who you think might be interested in our weird takes on media. Uh, Also, just want to say, if you want to know anything more about the show or if you want to reach out to us directly, the best way to do that is through our website, bsgpod.com. It's got info about me and Dylan. It's got a uh, contact form if you need to reach out to us directly about anything. It's got info about the show. It's a great one-stop shop for all things BSG Pod. There's no actual merchandise there, so calling it a shop is a little bit weird, but you know what I mean. <laughs> BSGpod.com. Awesome. Thanks for that, Chris. <laughs> um, if you want to hit us up on social media, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter, where our handle is at BSG underscore cast. Um, and if you want to engage with us, talk, talk to us, uh, talk about our a content i don't want you to talk about us that seems kind of vain on my part <laughs> you should use the hashtag bsg pod also huge thanks to our friend brendan french for the key art he has provided our show if you dig his stuff you can check him out on his squarespace at brennan-french.squarespace.com that is b-r-e-n-n-e-n hyphen french 
That's squarespace.com. You can also find him on Instagram.com slash Brennan French Arts or on Twitter at Brennan underscore French. Another big thank you to our friend BioQuery. He's the musician behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio Volume 1 Instrumentality. He is a great composer and producer of electronic music, and if you like our theme song, you should go check out his other jams. You can find him by going to soundcloud.com slash BioQuery. That's soundcloud.com slash B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. Or by heading to Spotify and searching for BioQuery. Thanks again to our patrons over at patreon.com slash bsgpod. It means the world to us that you have given us the support that you have, and I would love... Nothing more than for anybody else who wants to support our show to head over there and check out what we have on offer. And thank you again to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. It is a great network full of podcasts about video games. If you like our show, you'll probably like a few of those too. So go check them out on Twitter at HPVGPodNetwork. Yes. (laughs) And I hope you all have a good week, a restful week, play some cool games, talk to your friends, talk to your family. I love you. Love you too. Kisses. Hey, Chris. Yeah? I wish I could make a map of your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Goodbye, everyone. Bro. Bro. Bro.